Good day, everyone. Welcome to Deconstructing Crypto. This is a podcast about deconstructing the cryptocurrency industry. We'll take a look at what's inside and under the hood. Each episode, we'll deliver an insider's view of litigation and enforcement risks in the crypto industry. We'll provide an analysis of what we're seeing in the industry from a legal perspective and take you through case studies happening in real time in the market. I'm your host, Todd Fishman, and with me is my co-host and partner, Gene Ingolia. Hi, Gene. Hi, Todd. So today, we're going to be diving into disruptive trading. We're going to set the scene and explain why a discussion of disruptive trading practices in cryptocurrency and other digital asset markets is relevant to market participants and users. Gene, I hear that you know a thing or two about insider trading. What can you tell us about your experience? Yeah, so look, I've had a bunch of those cases, both as a federal prosecutor uh, trying the Matthew Martoma case, which which is still the largest dollar insider trading case charged. And then since I've been on the defense side, I've handled insider trading matters for a bunch of clients, including going to trial against the SEC and against my former colleagues in the SDNY. Todd, tell us a little bit about your experience. Sure. For over 25 years, I've been representing individuals and companies in financial market matters in both regulatory investigations and complex civil actions, all involving the securities laws, the commodities laws, and antitrust. So just to tee up today's session, in the past month, we have seen a severe shock to the crypto ecosystem. A number of digital asset platforms have dissolved or been placed into liquidation proceedings. Other platforms have sought the protection of bankruptcy laws in the United States and elsewhere. And estimates in the financial press are that $2 trillion worth of value have been destroyed in cryptocurrency and adjacent markets. Before this shock, there have been a number of enforcement actions and civil suits involving alleged disruptive trading practices in cryptocurrency and other digital asset trading markets. Those markets include the cash and physical markets for digital tokens, as well as exchange markets where derivative products are offered and traded. We expect this trend to accelerate in light of current developments. Indeed, in July 2022 testimony before a U.S. Congressional Oversight Committee, the SEC's Director of Enforcement highlighted the expansion of the agency's crypto asset and cyber unit and stated, quote, the expanded unit will leverage the agency's expertise to ensure investors are protected in the crypto markets and from cyber-related threats. With a focus on investigating securities laws violations related to crypto asset offerings, exchanges, broker-dealers, and lending and staking products, decentralized or DeFi finance platforms, non-fungible tokens, and stablecoin. For today, we will focus on three types of disruptive trading practices, front-running, insider trading, and cross-market manipulation. Using certain factual scenarios derived from actual cases, we'll frame the relevant conduct, describe in basic terms the legal framework, and offer some insights as to what we might see from enforcers and from civil plaintiffs. And look, as we think our discussion is going to reveal, you can think about this analysis as coming in three layers. First is the direct risk to individuals of charges of insider trading under the securities law or of violations of the wire fraud statute. 
as the digital assets can be characterized as property. Second are the institutional risks, especially if the companies involved are public issuers with reporting disclosures to market regulators, with potential claims under the securities or commodities laws, and potentially bank fraud, depending on the nature of representations to the company's banks. And then third is potential criminal and civil claims under RICO, the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, where many of these individual violations could be framed as predicate acts under that statutory scheme. So let's start with front-running. Todd, tell us about front-running. Sure. What is front-running? Front-running generally is trading ahead in a financial asset by a market participant who, through a position of trust and confidence, acquires confidential information of a future transaction that is about to affect its price substantially. For example, to constitute a violation of Section 10B of the U.S. Securities Exchange Act, there must be evidence of deception. In particular, for instance, the leading Second Circuit decision on the subject requires that there be some theft of confidential information in violation of a known duty. So let's bring in our special fictional character guest, Alexei Numis, for illustration purposes. And we've got a slide that you guys can look at as we talk about this scenario. Alexei Numis is employed as a special projects manager for the fictional well-known digital asset platform based in the U.S., CoinAcres. Alexei Numis often has access to confidential information about when CoinAcres might issue new digital assets for trading. And as part of his role, he devises house strategies for CoinAcres in trading in newly offered digital assets. In one particular instance, when CoinAcres launched trading in a new issuance of Nilcoin, a new product, Nilcoin prices spiked at the time of the announcement. An accusation soon appeared on social media suggesting that employees of CoinAcres might have traded improperly. Todd, what do you see here in terms of risk and maybe potential areas of exposure? Sure. Thank you, Gene. I think there are at this point, two main points to consider in this example, and it really cuts across some of the other trading practices that we're going to be discussing during the course of this podcast. First is there's an extraterritoriality point. An issue to focus on is whether CoinAcres is a U.S. or a non-U.S. based platform. As most of our listeners will be aware, the principles under Morrison will impact substantially the ability of criminal authorities and civil regulators and civil plaintiffs to bring claims or charges against non-U.S. platforms. Most non-U.S. platforms are not domestic exchanges, and the transactions at issue are in effect matched on systems outside of the United States. So there will be hurdles as to whether there can be a permissible extraterritorial application of U.S. statutory schemes. Uh, one footnote is under the Dodd-Frank Act legislation that was enacted in 2010, there is a benefit to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission for enforcement actions as statutorily uh, the relevant test departed from Morrison and reverted back to the old conduct and effects test, which might bring a broader set of conduct under the coverage of U.S. statutory law. In addition, as a second point to this example, there are a number of civil cases against digital asset platforms that reflect a growing concern among market participants that such platforms use customer order flow information 
to benefit their own house positions. And if listeners have the benefit of the slides that Gene and I have prepared, we have created a customer trade blotter that just reflects trades at CoinAcres, and then another sort of house order flow trade blotter that shows just the internal trades at CoinAcres. And we have tried to depict an instance where Alexi Numis is essentially jumping ahead of anticipated order flow from the customers and then getting the benefit of that trade flow and then selling his position after there is sufficient liquidity and volume in the Nilcoy product. This is an effective pump and dump type of scenario. And the main legal concern that I think is going to start to be debated is whether exchanges can employ and use to their own advantage confidential non-public order flow information to the benefit of their own trading book. An important point is this analysis is more complex on decentralized exchanges where the order book is public and thus publicly known. This may make the practice easier for traders, but not illegal because potentially there is an argument that there is no theft of confidential information. Todd, I was going to ask, does it matter what the exchange says to its customers about how it might use information of that sort? It's possible. And there are a number of cases um, in a number of markets, such as in the auction rate securities markets arising out of the financial crisis, as to whether in the terms of, of use or in the product offering material, um, this type of practice might be disclosed to users and to market participants. For it to be a defense, however, those disclosures need to be precise and specific to the market activity or to the product involved. I don't think a general disclaimer will be sufficient. And that argument is going to sound in whether or not there was deception. Is that right? That is correct. Now you're just fighting about the nuance. If there is some kind of disclosure, then you're fighting about, was it sufficiently rigorous such that a reasonable person should have known, you know, wasn't deceived? Yes, 100%. Front running takes us nicely into our second topic, which is insider trading. And what is insider trading? Insider trading generally is considered to be the practice of purchasing or selling a company's securities while in possession of material non-public information that was obtained in breach of a duty. As this audience will be aware, that there are traditionally two main theories of insider trading. First is the classical theory of insider trading. That's a form of insider trading when a corporate insider, like an employee or a director or officer, commits securities fraud by trading in securities of their company on the basis of material non-public information that they've learned during the course of their work. The second is the misappropriation theory, and that theory holds that a person commits fraud in connection with a securities transaction when he misappropriates confidential information for trading purposes in breach of a duty owed to the source of the information. Classically, that's a lawyer working on a merger. Under this theory, a fiduciary's undisclosed self-serving use of a principal's information to purchase or sell securities in breach of a duty of loyalty or confidentiality defrauds the principal of the exclusive use of that information. That makes it securities fraud and classically insider trading. So let's bring back Alexei Numis. And Todd, you want to lay out our scenario? Yes, of course. And for the benefit of the listeners, um, if you have access to the second slide that we prepared, 
which tries to, in a figurative way, depict this hypothetical. So, Alexi Numis, having eluded any appointment-related discipline around Nilcoin, um, have remained at his role at CoinAcres and promoted to chief trading officer at the company. In that role, during an all-hands quarterly meeting about the financial condition of the company, Alexi Numis learns that due to the decrease in value across the board of digital assets and the loss of order flow, CoinAcres revenues have plunged, and those results will be reported at the end of the month in the company's CEO's monthly blog. In an attempt to keep employees from leaving the company, CoinAcres will issue a special award of CoinAcre tokens to all of its employees. Alexi Loomis devises a strategy for structured short sales of CoinAcre tokens in advance of the special stock award and blog announcement. Um, Gene, given your experience, can you walk us through what are the potential risks here, both to our friend Alexi Numis and to CoinAcres as well? This is an area of the law that's quite fluid. And we've seen just in the last couple of months, the first insider trading prosecutions, both on the criminal side and by the SEC in the digital asset space. And there've been two, there's been the Chastain case, which relates to the OpenSea uh, platform, which was just a criminal case and charged Chastain who worked at OpenSea. And so it was an insider classically using the words insider trading up and down the allegations to describe the conduct at issue, but the actual charge was wire fraud, not securities fraud. There's no allegation that the NFTs involved in that case were securities and there's no companion SEC case, but there's a criminal case saying that it's wire fraud. And in the last week or so, we've seen motions to dismiss um, that are quite interesting and, and raise the legal issues that are going to be litigated over the next month, both in this case and in general in this space. And so Chastain's counsel has made two principal arguments here. One is, if it's not a security, and there's no allegation that it is in that case, and it's not a commodity, and the prosecutors confirmed that they didn't view it as a commodity, then it can't be insider trading. That's essentially argument number one. And argument number two is, it can't be wire fraud, because wire fraud's a property fraud crime, and the inside information we're talking about isn't property. Just last week, the New York Council of Defense Lawyers filed an amicus expanding that last property fraud argument. Uh, they filed it on August 24th, 2022. And what they're saying is, look, the government is alleging here that any confidential business information is property, and that can't be right. That's way too broad. So this is a fight about the 1987 Supreme Court case called Carpenter, which dealt with a leak of uh, newspaper information. And the fight is between the government that says confidential business information is property and therefore wire fraud applies anytime somebody takes their stuff they learn at work that they're supposed to keep in confidence and uses it for their own gain. And the defense, which says, whoa, 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 that's much too broad a view of property. Property can't be defined that broadly. It's only property if that confidential business info has inherent market value in the hands of the, of the business. And that's quite a narrowing, and that would put a lot of digital asset-related information outside the scope of a wire fraud charge. That fight is playing out in real time, right? It is Chastain's use of information about which asset 
is going to be featured or made available for trading on the OpenSea platform, does that have uh, economic value in the hands of OpenSea? It's obviously relevant to outsiders, right? To outside, it has value, but does it have value to the company itself? And the argument is no. It's like what you choose to put in your display window if you're a shop owner. That might impact sales, and outsiders could pay attention to what's going on in your window and make trading decisions. Uh, but that's not property, and having advance notice of that isn't a property fraud like wire fraud. So those are the legal issues bubbling up. There's a second case uh, that involves a former employee of Coinbase, which did get charged by the SEC, at least as to certain digital assets, which the SEC has alleged are securities, and also got charged criminally. And the motion practice hasn't started there, but I expect you're going to see similar motion practice in that case. So quite a fluid area of the law, and I particularly enjoyed the amicus brief, which liberally cites to the government's own papers confessing error in the Blazak case, which is a case where we represented one of the defendants and continue to represent him on appeal. And the government, in the voice of the Solicitor General's office, confessed error as to all the substantive counts, essentially on using the definition of property that I just articulated, that it has to have inherent market value to its owner for the confidential business information to be property. And so the amicus keeps quoting the government's language in that case back at the government in the Chastain case. And that's interesting as a, just a pure matter of inside baseball because there seems to be a tension and view between the DOJ, um, as articulated by the Solicitor General's office, and the SDMY, which brought the Blazat case on the broader theory than the government ultimately has supported. And as reflected in the fact that they brought the Chastain case, and have doubled down on their view of Carpenter and what counts as property fraud. So there seems to be a tension between how the SDNY sees the law and how the DOJ sees the law, and that amicus brief seems to delight in pointing that out. So anyway, that's the legal landscape you're navigating when you're trying to assess what your risk is here. And here you've got an insider who learns confidential business information. There'll be a question about whether or not he understood, and in fact, there were policies around that restricted the divulging of that information as a predicate issue. And then, Todd, what else jumps out at you from this hypothetical? The other thing that is interesting, and maybe it's worthwhile just to expand out the hypothetical a little a little bit, just to explore the very cogent point, Gene, you made about what is confidential information and what is property. Let's just try to focus on that point a little bit. And let's change the hypothetical as follows. Let's say shortly after this internal meeting at CoinAcres, Alexei Numis learns through his position that due to the CoinAcres financial condition, a number of new stablecoin issuances scheduled to take place on CoinAcres platform have been canceled and have been redesignated for an upstart competition platform called CoinRes. Alexei Numis, however, knows from a confidential internal study prepared by CoinAcres that the CoinRes platform is not sustainable. Its technology is poor, its executives are not experienced, and its platform is subject to random and uncontrolled outages. Alexei Numis then puts in place a series of short trades timed to be executed once the new stablecoin issuances go live on CoinRes uh, with the expectation that they will not perform well. I know that there's an, an SEC charge case that sort of 
tracks this hypothetical, but can you talk about these issues in terms of confidential information and property? So all sorts of issues here, right? This hypothetical assumes that the internal study that CoinAcres prepared is confidential. So as an initial matter, it is confidential business information. Um, Nomis is on notice of that, presumably. Maybe there's a policy in place at CoinAcres that says to employees, you're not allowed to use confidential information that you learn during the course of your work for your own personal purposes, including trading. That would be a typical policy that a company would have. Um, and it's something that prosecutors and regulators will point to to say he owes the business a duty of confidence. Let's assume that that's the case here. Then the next question is, is it property such that you could be charged with wire fraud? And the question around that is, do you accept the government's view that all confidential business information is property? And therefore, yes, we can bring a wire fraud charge whenever somebody uses something they learn at work that they're supposed to keep in confidence for their personal gain? Or does property have that more narrow definition that you've seen the defense and the advocates argue in the Chastain case and other defense lawyers argue in the Blazak case? And if that's right, the analysis is, does this confidential internal study prepared by CoinAcres have inherent market value to CoinAcres? and make arguments about the economic value of it. Maybe the prosecutors would say it does because they hired consultants to do that study and they pay the consultant some amount of money to do that evaluation. And so the business must have thought that that uh, information was valuable enough to pursue that study. But that's the analysis. That's the question that has to get answered as a predicate to answer, the, is it property? And and then of course the, the back end of it is this only matters if we're talking about a wire fraud theory. If we're talking about a securities fraud theory, then the question is, were any securities traded? And that analysis turns on how we test and whether or not the digital asset at issue has that testing counts as a security. And what we've seen most recently in the case of the former employee of Coinbase is the companies like Coinbase issued a statement saying unequivocally, these are not securities. I don't care what the SEC says, they're wrong. We're comfortable in our analysis that they're not securities. And the SEC obviously thought differently and brought the charges against the individual. So a live issue and each digital asset has to be analyzed under that, that case law to determine whether or not it's a security. And presumably most businesses have had lawyers do that kind of analysis to their satisfaction and the risk they have to deal with is the SEC going to come to a different conclusion. And if they do, what do you do about it? Are you fighting about it? Are you litigating the issue? In the case of the former employee of Coinbase, there's going to be litigation about it, but Coinbase isn't a party to it at the moment. And so that litigation of that individual, for those individuals are facing, could have profound implications for folks down the road if there's a determination by a court that those are in fact securities. And obviously folks are grappling with that now in real time. They're not waiting for a court decision and they're doing risk assessments and trying to figure out what's the common thread in the SEC's analysis of those digital assets that the SEC thinks are securities, and then asking themselves, are we going to adopt a policy that says, as prophylactically, whatever we think is right on the merits, uh, we're going to adjust our conduct on the basis of what the SEC seems to think are securities. Gene, that's an excellent analysis, and I think we should look forward to updating our listeners as developments occur both in the courts and before the regulators. 
Um, just quickly, as a third species of disruptive trading, another issue that has sort of percolated up is something that has been identified generically as cross-market manipulation. So what is cross-market manipulation? In general terms, cross-market manipulation can occur when a trader places orders in one financial product with the intent of impacting the market of a related financial product or the same product traded on a different venue. This offer occurs where one venue might be less liquid than another venue, and the trader can more easily affect his or her trading intent on the less liquid market. So Gene, can you walk us through a uh, quick hypothetical here for our listeners? So we'll come back again to our hypothetical Alexi Numis. And in this scenario, he's been put in charge of a new venture by CoinAcres to overhaul and improve the digital asset derivative trading business. And as part of this role, Alexi Numis worked with his team to develop a new derivative product, which is called MegaSwapture, a product with swap and future features that covers a basket of digital assets traded on spot markets. At inception, the largest holding in the basket, about 25%, is comprised of Nugatory Coin, a digital coin thinly traded on a platform based in Dubai. Megaswapture, once launched, is very successful, and it enjoys a devoted following. In reviewing daily portfolio analyses of Megaswapture, Alexei Numis notices patterns in overnight trading mostly due to low trading volumes and outages in nugatory coin. To enhance Megaswapture's returns, Alexei puts in place a trading strategy that bolsters the volume and liquidity of nugatory coin in the overnight trading hours. So Todd, if that's our scenario, and I guess we should look at the third slide for folks who are following along. Todd, what are some of the risks here and maybe potential areas of exposure for this scenario? Gee, thank you. This is an interesting example, and you know it's not clearly a directly manipulative strategy. And I think going to the point that we discussed earlier briefly, it's really more focused on disclosure and product terms. Here, the conduct focuses on whether wrongful conduct might exist when, for presumptively legitimate reasons, Alexi is augmenting trading volume and liquidity on one market to assist liquidity in another product. As we discussed earlier, there is some historical analog around auction rate se um, se securities around the 2007-2008 financial crisis. There, the banks were offering auction rate securities, sometimes supported the auctions in one way or another in order to increase or maintain the liquidity in the instruments. In an enforcement action brought by the SEC and later in companion civil cases, um, the issue really came down to whether the banks disclosed the practices to support or to provide or maintain liquidity in these instruments. So here in our example, Mr. Numis is trading at an adjacent spot market to support the new derivative product, and it might not be illegal if either on the terms of, of use or in the product offering materials, there is a specific disclosure that for purposes of megaswapture, from time to time, uh, coin acres might engage 
in trading in adjacent markets to provide the necessary liquidity. Gina, anything else to add to this point? I think what we always worry about as defense lawyers is, and I guess this is from hard experience, is how do the facts look with the benefit of hindsight as compared to how they looked in real time? And in areas of cross-market manipulation, I feel like that's a particular potential risk, that you have somebody coming at it, looking backwards in time, seeing trading activity, and, and they're only going to be looking if there was a benefit, right? Um, and so it's not, or it's only going to be of interest to them if, if there was some benefit to the other position. And that's what I worry about is from that perspective, where there's some benefit to the other position, there's at least a concern that a regulator looks and says, why are they really doing this? And sometimes the offered explanation of enhancing liquidity can ring hollow to a regulator. But what do you think? I agree. I think there's always the problem of what the initial intent might look like and what would the benefit of hindsight um, impact to the markets and potentially harm to users or market participants that might infect, for lack of a better word, what that initial intent might be. So on behalf of both Gene and I, thank you for your time, and we hope that you enjoyed our session today on disruptive trading practices. If you're interested in these ideas, please join us in the future as we hope to be rolling this out on additional topics in the cryptocurrency space. And feel free to check out our links on the Alnet Overy website with additional resources. Mm -hmm.